Part One, Chapter Four of Lady Byron Vindicated: A History of the Byron Controversy by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Four: Results After Lord Byron's Death. Part One of Three. At the time of Lord Byron's death the english public had been so skilfully manipulated by the byron propaganda that the sympathy of the whole world was with him a tide of emotion was now aroused in england by his early death dying in the cause of greece and liberty there arose a general wail for him as for a lost pleiad not only in england but over the whole world a great rush of enthusiasm for his memory to which the greatest literary men of england freely gave voice by general consent, Lady Byron seems to have been looked upon as the only cold-hearted, unsympathetic person in this general mourning. From that time, the literary world of England apparently regarded Lady Byron as a woman to whom none of the decorums nor courtesies of ordinary womanhood, nor even the consideration belonging to common humanity, were due. She that is a widow indeed and desolate has been regarded in all Christian countries as an object made sacred by the touch of God's afflicting hand, sacred in her very helplessness, and the old Hebrew scriptures gave to the Supreme Father no dearer title than the widow's God. But on Lord Byron's death, men not devoid of tenderness, men otherwise generous and of fine feeling, acquiesced in insults to his widow with an obtuseness that seems, on review, quite incredible. Lady Byron was not only a widow, but an orphan. She had no sister for confidant, no father and mother to whom to go in her sorrows, sorrows so much deeper and darker to her than they could be to any other human being she had neither son nor brother to uphold and protect her on all hands it was acknowledged that so far there was no fault to be found in her but her utter silence her life was confessed to be pure useful charitable and yet at this time of her sorrow the writers of england issued article upon article not only devoid of delicacy but apparently injurious and insulting towards her with a blind unconsciousness which seems astonishing one of the greatest literary powers of that time was the blackwood the reigning monarch on that literary throne was wilson the lion-hearted the brave generous tender poet and with some sad exceptions the noble man but wilson had believed the story of byron and by his very generosity and tenderness and pity was betrayed into injustice in the noctes of november eighteen twenty four there is a conversation of the noctes club in which north says quote, byron and i knew each other pretty well and i suppose there's no harm in adding that we appreciated each other pretty tolerably did you ever see his letter to me End quote. the footnote to this says this letter which was printed in byron's lifetime was not published till eighteen thirty when it appeared in moore's life of byron and footnote it is one of the most vigorous prose compositions in the language byron had the highest opinion of wilson's genius and noble spirit 
in the first place with our present ideas of propriety and good taste we should reckon it an indecorum to make the private affairs of a pure and good woman whose circumstances under any point of view were trying and who evidently shunned publicity the subject of public discussion in magazines which were read all over the world lady byron as they all knew had on her hands a most delicate and onerous task in bringing up an only daughter necessarily inheriting peculiarities of genius and great sensitiveness and the many mortifications and embarrassments which such intermeddling with her private matters must have given certainly should have been considered by men with any pretensions to refinement or good feeling but the literati of england allowed her no consideration no rest no privacy in the noctes of november eighteen twenty five there is the record of a free conversation upon lord and lady byron's affairs interlarded with exhortations to push the bottle and remarks on whisky toddy medwin's conversations with lord byron is discussed which we are told in a note appeared a few months after the noble poet's death there is a rather bold and free discussion of lord byron's character his fondness for gin and water on which stimulus he wrote don juan and james hogg says pleasantly to mullion oh mullion it's a pity you and byron couldn't have been acquaint there would have been a brave sparring to see who could say the wildest and the dreadfulest things for he had neither fear of man or woman and would have his joke or jeer cost what it might and then follows a specimen of one of his jokes with an actress that in indecency certainly justifies the assertion from the other stories which follow and the parenthesis that occurs frequently quote, mind your glass james a little more quote, it seems evident that the party are progressing in their peculiar kind of civilization it is in the same circle and paper that lady byron's private affairs come up for discussion the discussion is thus elegantly introduced hogg reach me de black bottle i say christopher what after all is your opinion o the lord and lady byron's quarrel do you yourself take part with him or with her i would like to hear your real opinion north oh dear well hogg since you will have it i think douglas kennard and hobhouse are bound to tell us whether there be any truth and how much in this story about the declaration signed by sir ralph milbank the note here tells us that this refers to a statement that appeared in blackwood immediately after byron's death to the effect that previous to the formal separation from his wife byron required and obtained from sir ralph milbank lady byron's father a statement to the effect that lady byron had no charge of moral delinquency to bring against him footnote recently lord lindsay has published another version of this story which makes it appear that he has conversed with a lady who conversed with hobhouse during his lifetime in which this story is differently reported in the last version it is made to appear that hobhouse had this declaration from lady byron herself and footnote north continues quote, and i think lady byron's letter the dearest duck one i mean should really be forthcoming if her ladyship's friends wish to stand fair before the public 
at present we have nothing but loose talk of society to go upon and certainly if the things that are said be true there must be thorough explanation from some quarter or the tide will continue as it has assuredly begun to flow in a direction very opposite of what we were for years accustomed sir they must explain this business of the letter you have of course heard about the invitation it contained the warm affectionate invitation to kirkby mallory hogg interposes i dinna like to be interrupting you mr north but i must inquire is the jug to stand still while you're going on at that rate north there porker these things are part and parcel of the chatter of every bookseller's shop a fortiari of every drawing-room in mayfair can the matter stop here can a great man's memory be permitted to incur damnation while these saving clauses are afloat anywhere uncontradicted and from this the conversation branches off into strong emphatic praise of byron's conduct in greece during the last part of his life the silent widow is thus delicately and considerately reminded in the blackwood that she is the talk not only over the whisky-jug of the noctes but in every drawing-room in london and that she must speak out and explain matters or the whole world will set against her but she does not speak yet the public persecution therefore proceeds medwin's book being insufficient another biographer is to be selected now the person in the noctes club who was held to have the most complete information of the byron affairs and was on that account first thought of by murray to execute this very delicate task of writing a memoir which should include the most sacred domestic affairs of a noble lady and her orphan daughter was Maginn the author of the pleasant joke that man never reaches the apex of civilization till he is too drunk to pronounce the word was the first person in whose hands the autobiography memoirs and journals of lord byron were placed with this view the following note from shelton mackenzie in the june number of the noctes eighteen twenty four says quote, at that time had he been so minded McGinn O'Doherty could have got up a popular life of Byron as well as most men in England. Immediately on the account of Byron's death being received in London, John Murray proposed that McGinn should bring out memoirs, journals, and letters of Lord Byron, and with this intent placed in his hand every line that he, Murray, possessed in Byron's handwriting the strong desire of byron's family and executors that the autobiography should be burned to which desire murray foolishly yielded made such a hiatus in the materials that murray and mcginn agreed it would not answer to bring out the work then eventually moore executed it End quote. the character of the times in which this work was to be undertaken will appear from the following note of mackenzie's to the noctes of august eighteen twenty four which we copy quote, in the blackwood of july eighteen twenty four was a poetical episode by the renowned timothy tickler of the editor of the john bull magazine on an article in his first number this article professed to be a portion of the veritable autobiography of byron which was burned and was called my wedding night it appeared to relate in detail everything that occurred in the twenty-four hours immediately succeeding that in which byron was married 
it had plenty of coarseness and some to spare it went into particulars such as hitherto had been given only by fabulous and it had notwithstanding many phrases and some facts which evidently did not belong to a mere fabricator some years after i compared this wedding night with what i had all assurance of having been transcribed from the actual manuscripts of byron and was persuaded that the magazine writer must have had the actual statement before him or have had a perusal of it the writer in blackwood declared his conviction that it really was byron's own writing the reader must remember that lord byron died april eighteen twenty four so that according to this his autobiography was made the means of this gross insult to his widow three months after his death if some powerful cause had not paralyzed all feelings of gentlemanly honor and of womanly delicacy and of common humanity towards lady byron throughout the whole british nation no editor would have dared to open a periodical with such an article or if he had he would have been overwhelmed with a storm of popular indignation which like the fire upon sodom would have made a pillar of salt of him for a warning to all future generations blackwood reproves the john bull in a poetical epistle recognizing the article as coming from byron and says to the author quote, but that you sir a wit and a scholar like you should not blush to produce what he blushed not to do take your compliment youngster this doubles almost the sorrow that rose when his honour was lost we may not wonder that the autobiography was burned as murray says in a recent account by a committee of byron's friends including hobhouse his sister and murray himself now the blackwood of july eighteen twenty four thus declares its conviction that this outrage on every sentiment of human decency came from lord byron and that his honour was lost mcginn does not undertake the memoir no memoir at all is undertaken till finally more is selected as like demetrius of old a well-skilled gilder and maker of silver shrines though not for diana to more is committed the task of doing his best for this battered image in which even the worshippers recognize foul sulphurous cracks but which they none the less stand ready to worship as a genuine article that fell down from jupiter moore was a man of no particular nicety as to moralities but in that matter seems not very much below what this record shows his average associates to be he is so far superior to mcginn that his vice is rose-coloured and refined he does not burst out with such heroic stanzas as mcginn's frank invitation to jeremy bentham jeremy throw your pen aside and come get drunk with me and we'll go where bacchus sits astride perched high on barrels three morris vice is cautious soft seductive slippery and covered at times with a thin tremulous veil of religious sentimentalism in regards to byron he was an unscrupulous committed partisan he was as much bewitched by him as ever man has been by woman and therefore to him at last the task of editing byron's memoirs was given this byron whom they all knew to be obscene beyond what even their most drunken tolerance could at first endure this man whose foul license spoke out what most men conceal from mere respect to the decent instincts of humanity 
whose honor was lost was submitted to this careful manipulator to be turned out a perfected idol for a world longing for an idol as the israelites longed for the calf in horeb the image was to be invested with deceitful glories and shifting halos admitted faults spoken of as peculiarities of sacred origin and the world given to understand that no common rule or measure could apply to such an undoubtedly divine production and so the hearts of men were to be wrung with pity for his sorrows as the yearning pain of a god and with anger at his injuries as sacrilege on the sacredness of genius till they were ready to cast themselves at his feet and adore then he was to be set up on a pedestal like nebuchadnezzar's image on the plains of dura and what time the world heard the sound of cornet sackbut and dulcimer in his enchanting verse they were to fall down and worship for lady byron moore had simply the respect that a commoner has for a lady of rank and a good deal of the feeling that seems to underlie all english literature that it is no matter what becomes of the woman when the man's story is to be told but with all his faults moore was not a cruel man and we cannot conceive such outrageous cruelty and ungentlemanly indelicacy towards an unoffending woman as he shows in these memoirs without referring them to lord byron's own influence in making him an unscrupulous committed partisan on his side so little pity so little sympathy did he suppose lady byron to be worthy of that he laid before her in sight of all the world selections from her husband's letters and journals in which the privacies of her courtship and married life were jested upon with a vulgar levity letters filled from the time of the act of separation with a constant succession of sarcasms stabs stings epigrams and vindictive allusions to herself bringing her into direct and insulting comparison with his various mistresses and implying their superiority over her there too were gross attacks on her father and mother as having been the instigators of the separation and poor lady milbank in particular is sometimes mentioned with epithets so offensive that the editor prudently covers the terms with stars as intending language too gross to be printed the last mistress of lord byron is uniformly brought forward in terms of such respect and consideration that one would suppose that the usual moral laws that regulate english family life had been specially repealed in his favour moore quotes with approval letters from shelley stating that lord byron's connection with laguiccioli has been of inestimable benefit to him and that he is now becoming what he should be a virtuous man moore goes on to speak of the connection as one though somewhat reprehensible yet as having all those advantages of marriage and settled domestic ties that byron's affectionate spirit had long sighed for but never before found and in his last resume of the poet's character at the end of the volume he brings the mistress into direct comparison with the wife in a single sentence Quote, the woman to whom he gave the love of his maturer years idolizes his name and with a single unhappy exception scarce an instance is to be found of one brought into relations of amity with him who did not retain a kind regard for him in life and a fondness for his memory 
literature has never yet seen instances of a person of lady byron's rank in life placed before the world in a position more humiliating to womanly dignity or wounding to womanly delicacy the direct implication is that she has no feelings to be hurt no heart to be broken and is not worthy even of the consideration which in ordinary life is to be accorded to a widow who has received those awful tidings which generally must awaken many emotions and call for some consideration even in the most callous hearts the woman who we are told walked the room vainly striving to control the sobs that shook her frame while she sought to draw from the servant that last message of her husband which she was never to hear was not thought worthy even of the rights of common humanity the first volume of the memoirs came out in eighteen thirty then for the first time came one flash of lightning from the silent cloud and she who had never spoken before spoke out the libels on the memory of her dead parents drew from her what her own wrongs never did during all this time while her husband had been keeping his effigy dangling before the public as a mark for solemn curses and filthy lampoons and secretly circulated disclosures that spared no sacredness and violated every decorum she had not uttered a word she had been subjected to nameless insults discussed in the assemblies of drunkards and challenged to speak for herself like the chaste lady in comus whom the vile wizard had bound in the enchanted seat to be grinned at and chattered at by all the filthy rabble of his dehumanized rout she had remained pure lofty and undefiled and the stains of mud and mire thrown upon her had fallen from her spotless garments now that she is dead a recent writer in the london quarterly dares give voice to an insinuation which even byron gave only a suggestion of when he called his wife clytemnestra and hints that she tried the power of youth and beauty to win to her the young solicitor lushington and a handsome young officer of high rank at this time such insinuations had not been thought of and the only and chief allegation against lady byron had been a cruel severity of virtue at all events when lady byron spoke the world listened with respect and believed what she said here let us too read her statement and give it the careful attention she solicits quoted from moore's life of byron volume six page two seventy five i have disregarded various publications in which facts within my own knowledge have been grossly misrepresented but i am called upon to notice some of the erroneous statements proceeding from one who claims to be considered as lord byron's confidential and authorized friend domestic details ought not to be intruded on the public attention if however they are so intruded the persons affected by them have a right to refute injurious charges mr moore has promulgated his own impressions of private events in which i was most nearly concerned as if he possessed a competent knowledge of the subject having survived lord byron i feel increased reluctance to avert to any circumstances connected with the period of my marriage nor is it now my intention to disclose them further than may be indispensably requisite for the end i have in view self-vindication is not the motive which actuates me to make this appeal and the spirit of accusation is unmingled with it but when the conduct of my parents is brought forward in a disgraceful light by the passages selected from lord byron's letters and by the remarks of his biographer mr moore 
i feel bound to justify their characters from imputations which i know to be false the passages from lord byron's letters to which i refer are the aspersions on my mother's character page six forty eight of the first edition of moore's life of byron volume one chapter four footnote the references here are to the first volume of the first edition of moore's life originally published by itself and footnote Quote, my child is very well and flourishing i hear but i must see also i feel no disposition to resign it to the contagion of its grandmother's society End quote. the assertion of my mother's dishonourable conduct in employing a spy page six forty five volume one chapter seven and etc quote, a mrs c now a kind of housekeeper and spy of lady anne's who in her better days was a washerwoman is supposed to be by the learned very much the occult cause of our domestic discrepancies the seeming exculpation of myself in the extract page six forty six with the words immediately following it her nearest relations are a blank where the blank clearly implies something too offensive for publication these passages tend to throw suspicion on my parents and give reason to ascribe the separation either to their direct agency or to that of officious spies employed by them from the following part of moore's narrative page six forty two it must also be inferred that an undue influence was exercised by my parents for the accomplishment of this purpose quoting mr moore it was in a few weeks after the latter communication between lord byron and myself that lady byron adopted the determination of parting from him she had left london at the latter end of january on a visit to her father's house in leicestershire and lord byron was in a short time to follow her they had parted in the utmost kindness she wrote him a letter full of playfulness and affection on the road and immediately on her arrival at kirkby mallory her father wrote to acquaint lord byron that she would return to him no more back to lady byron in my observations upon this statement i shall as far as possible avoid touching on any matters relating personally to lord byron and myself the facts are i left london for kirkby mallory the residence of my father and mother on the fifteenth of january eighteen sixteen lord byron had signified to me in writing january sixth his absolute desire that i should leave london on the earliest day that i could conveniently fix it was not safe for me to undertake the fatigue of a journey sooner than the fifteenth previously to my departure it had been strongly impressed on my mind that lord byron was under the influence of insanity this opinion was derived in a great measure from the communications made to me by his nearest relatives and personal attendant who had more opportunities than myself of observing him during the latter part of my stay in town it was even represented to me that he was in danger of destroying himself with the concurrence of his family i had consulted dr bailey as a friend january eighth respecting this supposed malady on acquainting him with the state of the case and with lord byron's desire that i should leave london dr bailey thought that my absence might be advisable as an experiment assuming the fact of mental derangement 
for dr bailey not having had access to lord byron could not pronounce a positive opinion on that point he enjoined that in correspondence with lord byron i should avoid all but light and soothing topics under these impressions i left london determined to follow the advice given by dr bailey whatever might have been the nature of lord byron's conduct towards me from the time of my marriage yet supposing him to be in a state of mental alienation it was not for me nor for any person of common humanity to manifest at that moment a sense of injury on the day of my departure and again on my arrival at kirkby january sixteenth i wrote to lord byron in a kind and cheerful tone according to those medical directions the last letter was circulated and employed as a pretext for the charge of my having been subsequently influenced to desert my husband it has been argued that i parted from lord byron in perfect harmony that feelings incompatible with any deep sense of injury had dictated the letter which i addressed to him and that my sentiments must have been changed by persuasion and interference when i was under the roof of my parents these assertions and inferences are wholly destitute of foundation when i arrived at kirkby mallory my parents were unacquainted with the existence of any causes likely to destroy my prospects of happiness and when i communicated to them the opinion which had been formed concerning lord byron's state of mind they were most anxious to promote his restoration by every means in their power they assured those relations who were with him in london that they would devote their whole care and attention to the alleviation of his malady and hoped to make the best arrangements for his comfort if he could be induced to visit them with these intentions my mother wrote on the seventeenth to lord byron inviting him to kirkby mallory she had always treated him with an affectionate consideration and indulgence which extended to every little peculiarity of his feelings never did an irritating word escape her lips in her whole intercourse with him the accounts given me after i left lord byron by the persons in constant intercourse with him added to those doubts which had before transiently occurred to my mind as to the reality of the alleged disease and the reports of his medical attendant were far from establishing the existence of anything like lunacy under this uncertainty i deemed it right to communicate to my parents that if i were to consider lord byron's past conduct as that of a person of sound mind nothing could induce me to return to him it therefore appeared expedient both to them and myself to consult the ablest advisers for that object and also to obtain still further information respecting the appearances which seemed to indicate mental derangement my mother determined to go to london she was empowered by me to take legal opinions on a written statement of mine though i had then reasons for reserving a part of the case from the knowledge even of my father and mother being convinced by the result of these inquiries and by the tenor of lord byron's proceedings that the notion of insanity was an illusion i no longer hesitated to authorize such measures as were necessary in order to secure me from being ever again placed in his power conformably with this resolution my father wrote to him on the second of february to propose an amicable separation lord byron at first rejected this proposal but when it was distinctly notified to him that if he persisted in his refusal recourse must be had to legal measures 
he agreed to sign a deed of separation upon applying to dr lushington who was intimately acquainted with all the circumstances to state in writing what he recollected upon this subject i received from him the following letter by which it will be manifest that my mother cannot have been actuated by any hostile or ungenerous motives towards lord byron my dear lady byron i can rely upon the accuracy of my memory for the following statement i was originally consulted by lady noel on your behalf whilst you were in the country the circumstances detailed by her were such as justified a separation but they were not of that aggravated description as to render such a measure indispensable on lady noel's representation i deemed a reconciliation with lord byron practicable and felt most sincerely a wish to aid in effecting it there was not on lady noel's part any exaggeration of the facts nor so far as i could perceive any determination to prevent a return to lord byron certainly none was expressed when i spoke of a reconciliation when you came to town in about a fortnight or perhaps more after my first interview with lady noel i was for the first time informed by you of facts utterly unknown as i have no doubt to sir ralph and lady noel on receiving this additional information my opinion was entirely changed i considered a reconciliation impossible i declared my opinion and added that if such an idea should be entertained i could not either professionally or otherwise take any part towards effecting it believe me very faithfully yours stephen lushington great george street january thirty first eighteen thirty end quote back to lady byron i have only to observe that if the statements on which my legal advisers the late sir samuel romilly and dr lushington formed their opinions were false the responsibility and the odium should rest with me only i trust that the facts which i have here briefly recapitulated will absolve my father and mother from all accusations with regard to the part they took in the separation between lord byron and myself they neither originated instigated nor advised that separation and they cannot be condemned for having afforded to their daughter the assistance and protection which she claimed there is no other near relative to vindicate their memory from insult i am therefore compelled to break the silence which i had hoped always to observe and to solicit from the readers of lord byron's life an impartial consideration of the testimony extorted from me a i noel byron hanger hill february nineteenth eighteen thirty this ends chapter four part one of three results after lord byron's death